um, going straight into preaching. And so if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. There's also notepads and pens. I'd encourage you to get a hold of a Bible because we will be studying it tonight. We will be studying God's Word, as we always do. And before I get into my sermon, um, I want to bring to light something that's been mentioned to me, uh, and it has to do with the use of phones during service. Um, I know that many of you have phones. You have phones in your pockets. Uh, They can be a tool that can be really helpful, but please just, just know that when you're using your phone, when you're going on Instagram or Snapchat or texting whoever during the sermon... Not only are you communicating that you don't care about what's being talked about or what's being worshipped, but also you're distracting the people around you. And so I just invite you, please just be intentional. We don't have a ton of time together on Wednesday nights, but this is an opportunity where you can put your phone on airplane mode, set it aside, and dig into God's Word because there really are treasures in this Word. And I don't want you guys to miss those. I want them to be something that you cherish Um, And even if that isn't a reality for you, if you don't cherish God's word, which I pray that you would, uh, please be respectful enough to the people around you that you're willing to to put that on silent, put that on standby uh, during our time together. Uh, Before I begin, let's, let's pray once more. Lord, we ask that your word would be alive and active in our hearts. We ask you'd humble us. That you would build us up with your word, that we would be encouraged, emboldened to live a life that is worthy of the calling of Christ. Lord, the opportunity that you present to each of us through your son, Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen. 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 When I say the word music, what comes into your mind? What comes into your mind when I say the word music? Is it a song? Is it an artist? I heard a couple artists. It's rhetorical. Um... Maybe it's, it's one song that's like stuck in your head that's been on repeat for the last like, you know, three days and you just cannot get out of your head. Maybe it's a playlist that you put on when you really want to be focused and you're trying to get your homework done and so there's just one playlist that I go to every time. Maybe it's a, a, a playlist or a track that you put on when you work out because you want to get like a, your, your best lift. You want to do your best job working out so you put on this song and it helps motivate you. Maybe it's a memory that you have that's attached to a song, um, something that you're brought back to a very distinct moment or image in your life because it's attached to a song. Music, in general, has a special way of impacting us. It helps communicate and uh, put truths in our minds that stay in our minds You can see this when the lyrics of a song just keep repeating through your mind over and over and over again. And yet it's like so hard to memorize a Bible verse or memorize something you have to memorize for school. Music can be a great instrument to help that. And it it does this way. It impacts us in ways that we probably don't expect. Because here's the question. Have you ever stopped to think about why is music impactful? Why does music affect us the way that it does? Why, when a guitar player strums a chord or a keys player hits a few notes on the piano, can it actually stir up this level of affection, this level of desire in our heart, even when there's not even words? Have you ever thought about how odd that is? 
it is that way because it's something that God has given us. And the way that we see that is it's not some reaction that only adults have. It's not some reaction that people who attach music to memories have. But actually there was a study done by Brigham Young University where they proved that babies at only nine months of age can tell the difference between happy songs and sad songs. And they react to this stimulus of music. It's something that's written in their DNA. It's written on their hearts, just as it is in each of your hearts. You ever wonder why lullabies are sung to babies who are not able to sleep? And they're, they're crying, they're crying, they're crying, crying. Sing a lullaby, and it helps coast them into sleep. Why is this? Because it actually slows the heart rate of the baby down, which helps them sleep. Isn't that amazing? That God would put this mechanism inside of a baby. Your body, even before you could walk or talk, was hardwired to respond to music. And it was, this, it was designed this way by the author of life who formed you together in your mother's womb, according to Psalm 139. Music is a gift of God. And it's one that is meant to be enjoyed. And tonight we're actually going to see how it is a tool, it is an instrument, no pun intended, that God has given us to aid in our worship, to aid in our affection and our praise and our honoring of God. If you're just joining us tonight, we are in the middle of a series called Who Are We? And we're walking through different pillars of what Redeemer Students is about and what are the truths that we hold to? What are the things that we focus on? And tonight we're going to be diving into the next pillar, worship. Worship. I want to share some insights from the Word of God that both inform and also transform how we worship. How, more specifically, how we sing to God. My title tonight, if you're taking notes, is Our Song. Our Song. You put that in your notes and put dot, dot, dot or colon. Uh, Because we're going to be completing this with a few different descriptors from Colossians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3. It's on the screen as well. And we will be looking at our passage tonight to find three different things that our song should be described by. Colossians 3. Looking at verse 16. It says this. Let the word of Christ... Dwell richly in your hearts, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Our song, point number one, is inspired by the word. Our song is inspired by the word. When we worship, when we sing to the Lord, our song is meant to be a response It is meant to be a reaction. So the question is, what are we responding to? Well, answer, the beginning of our verse, the word of Christ. The word of Christ is the fuel. When we sing, we are responding to God's word, the word that is inspired. As we learned a few weeks ago, it is actually breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. The word of God is profitable, and it is his very word. And therefore, the motivation and fuel for vocal singing to the Lord in worship is not the sounds of acoustic guitar or the playing of the piano or even the beat of the drum. Those things are all helpful. Those are gifts. We are to use them in worship. But they're not the fuel. 
They're not the motivation. They're not the thing that should conjure up our desires to worship God. Instead, our song must come from the Word of God, and more specifically, what's revealed in God's Word. We should sing of the glory of God, the power of God, the beauty of God, the love of God, the love of God which overwhelms the sin of our hearts, that separates us from God. We should sing of our deliverance from our sin, from the freedom that Christ has given us in Jesus. We should sing about the truth that we are adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. We are heirs of all things. We must have the word of God dwelling within us in order for these to spill out into our song. This word cannot be something that we visit occasionally or indifferently. A little bit here, a little bit there. As the text says, the word of Christ must dwell in you richly. Richly. What does that look like? Well, who here has siblings? You raise your hand. Who has siblings? Okay, who here has ever shared a room with a sibling? Yep, many of you. A lot of you. That's great. I have as well. I grew up for many years sharing a room with my brother Nate. When you share a room with someone, there's a very intimate connection that you have with them. The things that they do affect you. When they go to bed, it kind of makes you go to bed. When they turn off the lights, it forces the lights off for you too. When they snore, you hear it and you're awakened by their snoring. There's this very close, almost rubbing that happens when you share a room with a sibling. And that's actually what this word to dwell means. It means to live with, to inhabit, to be in the same room as. And so when we think of what God's word looks like in our hearts, it should inhabit, it should dwell within our hearts the same way that our sibling shares our room. God's word must share life with us. Not just for 30 seconds or five minutes at the beginning or the end of the day. Not just a passing glance or a passing interaction. But does God's word share life with you in the highs and in the lows? In the victories and in the defeats? In the moments of of winning and in the moments of losing? Does God's word share life with you? We sing, and we're called to sing, in a way that pleases God, and we do this when God's word dwells in us. And it dwells in us richly, abundantly, when we actually yield to this word, and instead of our opinion being the number one priority, God's opinion, as prescribed in his book, in the Bible, is the number one priority. That's what it means to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And when this happens, this is when our song that comes out of our mouth will be both honorable and effective. This song, however, is not designed to just be one that is here within our hearts. But instead, it starts here, and then it moves out to others. And that's point number two. Our song addresses one another. Our song addresses one another. If we look back at our verse, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Do you get that? That all believers here are called to teach and to admonish. All believers are called to teach and to admonish. So what, what, are, those two, what are those thoughts? What, are, what is that talking about? What is teaching? What's admonishing? What's the difference? 
Well, first of all, teaching is the addition of knowledge. So if you go to school and your teacher teaches you, as is their job, they are adding to your brain cells knowledge. They're adding to your minds thoughts, facts, truths. Whereas if your teacher admonishes you, they are saying to not do a negative behavior. So knowledge, teaching is the addition of positive. Admonishment is the subtraction of negative. Okay, do we see that? They're, they're two sides of the same coin. This is what I did at the beginning of the sermon in addressing phones, admonishment. Okay, it's, sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's uncomfortable, but we need both parts of this. We need both aspects of this. Here's an illustration to help what these two can look like. Next spring, to help my lawn grow better, I will apply a product called Weed and Feed. Weed and Feed. What's Weed and Feed? Well, first of all, there's one part of Weed and Feed that it kills weeds. Okay, when you have weeds, crabgrass and clover and creeping charlie that come up in your lawn, you have to have something that kills the weeds. But Weed and Feed also has the feed part, which is fertilizer for grass. So the part of the process that's so important is you have to be killing the bad as well as encouraging the growth and the health of the good. If we are teaching, but we're not admonishing, the soil of our hearts may have a lot of things growing up in it. But it's probably going to be good things mixed with bad things. If we are admonishing, but not teaching, there will be good things being produced in your heart but not to the level that God desires. So that's why he gives us both teaching and admonishing. And we're supposed to do this to administer this weed and feed in a specific way. That's what our verse says. We are supposed to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. There is a wisdom component that we need to be specific in the administration of teaching and admonishing. We need to do this carefully. And the good news is that God gives us, through his word, the ability to know how to administer that, how to provide that in the moment that we need it. And we trust in his spirit to give us the words in the very hour to speak. Now, as I'm saying this, it can be easy to assume that the only one who's supposed to teach and admonish is me, as the person who's teaching the sermon. But that's not true. This verse says that this is supposed to happen in each of you. And it happens in each of you through your song, through your voice. Student, you are called to be a participant in this. And the verse tells us that we are all to teach and admonish with our voices in songs. That's what it means when it says here, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Paul here tells us that we are to use three different kinds of songs to do this, which is kind of interesting And we don't have too much time to kind of unpack this, but at the heart of what this phrase means is that there's a wide variety of actual types of music that is building up, that is teaching, that is admonishing. Some of you in this room really enjoy singing hymns. You love looking at the screen and reading lyrics that are really deep and meaningful and impactful, and that that really helps stir your heart up to worship God in a way that's pleasing to him. Some of you, you enjoy simpler songs that are, that are more repetitive, that are more meditative, 
that look at kind of one or two truths and really hone in on those and give you opportunity to think and to process these truths. Paul here is prescribing that we are supposed to use both kinds of these songs and giving us a wide sampling of what we're supposed to sing. Students, we are being called to sing all of them, all kinds. Let's not fall into the trap of singing only when the lyrics are deep or singing only when the truth is really relevant to us. But instead, let's, let's commit to working in our, in our hearts in prayer the Lord to have joy and boldness and to sing loudly even when it's not a song that we are particularly moving towards immediately, naturally. We know that these songs are not just sung to the people around us, they're sung to the one who has redeemed us through Jesus. And because of that, we can have joy knowing that he is hearing our song and they're blessing his people. Do you realize that when we gather, when we sing in worship, we're actually experiencing a foretaste of what's going to happen in heaven? The Apostle John writes about this in Revelation chapter 5. You can talk about this in small group. He gets a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like for all of us when we enter it who have trusted in Jesus. That there are a hundred million angels. That's probably an exaggeration because he couldn't count them. Because there's too many to count. And on top of that, there was creatures in heaven. There were creatures on earth. There were creatures under the earth. And they're all shouting praises to Jesus. To the Lamb who sits on the throne. Worthy, worthy, worthy. And I know some of you got an opportunity to experience just a little bit of this. Last prayer night in September, we went to Redemption City Church. And we all packed in this room. And we all sung praises to God And it was awesome. It was awesome. I would encourage you to be a part of every prayer night you can because it is an amazing opportunity to take part in the worship of God in a special way. But we do that even on Wednesday nights and on Sunday mornings when we all come together and we sing the truths about God that have changed our heart. We are partaking in something that we will be doing for all of eternity. That is what heaven will be like. It will be worship. And mostly it'll be worship through song. That's kind of amazing to think about. When you and I sing at church, we need to remember that worship, singing, is the tool that God is using to work in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us. Worship is not an icebreaker into the night. It's not just the intro that's the buffer before the preaching so that all the people can make their way in. Worship is not the opportunity that you have to showcase how loud you can sing, or how amazing your specific voice is. It's not a chance to goof off with your friends or to show something that you have been waiting to tell them about. Worship is intentional, and it needs to be intentional because it is a means that God has given us to honor him. Worship is is a, is a very specific thing that God has given us to shape and form and refine our hearts. Young men, if I could specifically address you here. There's a notion that some of you find yourselves believing that singing, especially singing loudly, is not masculine. That's wrong. A heart of worship honors God. 
And actually the man in the Bible, the only one that God ever said is a man after his own heart was a singer. <laughs> you ever think about that? His name was David. And so as David has sung, so we are called to sing. Do not let the fear of others prevent you from leading the women in this ministry to the Lord. Do not feel that because your voice isn't as good, which it's not, I can assure you, guys, your voices are not as good as the girls, that doesn't disqualify you from singing. That doesn't let you say, oh no, I'll let the other people handle this. No, you can actually lead in intentionality through the way that you worship God. Our song is inspired by the word. It starts with an understanding of who God is and what he has done, and it moves out. It addresses one another, teaching and admonishing through many types of songs. And lastly, number three, it gives thanks to God. It gives thanks to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing with all wisdom, singing hymns, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. How are we to do this? With thankfulness in our hearts to God. You see, there's almost a a cyclical nature, cyclical meaning cycle, nature to how worship works. We study God's word, it fills us up, we sing out, it blesses other people, which then helps us give thanks to God, which leads us back to the word, and the cycle continues. That is the cycle of worship. We have to understand, though, that thankfulness in our hearts to God is not just a shallow or a casual thanks. Appreciate that. Like, thanks for holding the door open for me. Or, thanks for helping me on my test. Or, whatever. It, no, it has to be an intentional, a transform, transformational thanks that goes to God. As I was thinking about this, I remembered the passage in Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Luke chapter 7. You probably don't recognize the reference, but as we go into the story, many of you will know it. Jesus is eating dinner with a man named Simon. He's a Pharisee. And he goes into his house, and this woman, a woman of the city who is a sinner, she's a prostitute, she sells her body for money. It was very detestable in that day, and all people who pursued this way of life were disgusted by, they they were a disgust to the people of high society who didn't do this. Simon, here in this interaction, is disgusted when he sees this woman come in. In verse 37, behold, a woman of the city came to Simon's house. And in this process, this woman worships Jesus. And she pours out this jar of ointment that was very costly. It would have been her whole life's savings, her whole inheritance. And she pours it out on the feet of Jesus. And the Pharisee meets this action with disgust. And says, this is terrible. How could this man who claims to be a prophet let, let his feet be touched by so wicked a woman? And Jesus responds. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you in verse 40. He says this, verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, 500 days wage, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the other owed 50. Still a lot of money, but not nearly as much. When they both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, Simon, which one of them will love him more? That's the question Jesus asks. Which one of them will love the moneylender more? Even Simon, who doesn't know God, he doesn't care about God's opinion, answers truthfully. He answers correctly. Well, I guess the one who had the larger debt canceled. 
And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. <clears throat> Even Simon, in his sin, recognizes that the one who had the bigger debt would be more thankful for the forgiveness of that debt. But the problem that we have when we read this story is that we always assume we're the debtor with 50 denarii. We never assume that our sin is as bad as it really is. Because we take inventory of our lives, and when we're honest, we see the ways that we disobey our parents. We lie, we cheat, we steal. We're angry. We have lust in our hearts. We're selfish. And we say, yeah, these are bad, but not nearly as bad as that guy. Not nearly as bad as that girl. I heard about what's going on in her life, and it's terrible. We see that person as the one that owes 500 days wages. But the truth is, is that our sin is an affront to a holy God. And the standard of our sin is not if whether or not the person next to us is doing a bigger sin or a worse sin. The standard of our sin is God's righteousness, which is perfect. And so when we sin against this God, we are sinning against Him personally, not just against or over or compared to someone that we know. When we grasp that our debt is 500 denarii, which is a, de- a debt that you could never repay... It is something that your life's work would never pay back. When we recognize that that is what Jesus has done to us, fills us with thanksgiving, puts the cross of Christ in the light that it actually deserves, that there was an insurmountable barrier, obstacle between you and God, and that the cross of Jesus, when we put our trust in Jesus as Lord, as Savior, reconciles that debt. It pays that debt. We have to recognize that Jesus is not one of many ways, but the only way. And he's the only way that we could be accepted, cared for, and loved as a son and daughter of God. The only way that this could happen is if the true son, Jesus, bore the weight and penalty of your sin, which he did on the cross. It could only happen if he was put to death on your behalf. But when we recognize this, this gives us great thanks. And we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving me from something that I could never save myself from. Thank you for giving me life that I could never earn for myself. For giving me what I have forfeited. For pursuing me when I didn't pursue you. For coming after me persistently over and over and over and over and over again. On Wednesday nights, on Sunday mornings, in discussion with my small group leader. As I read your word, God, thank you for coming after me even when I wasn't coming after you. That is the love of Christ. And it is pursuing you. And when we recognize that, we taste that, we see, Lord, thank you. And that's the response of our hearts. We give thanks to God. Thankfulness in our hearts to God. If your heart doesn't sing this way, pray that the Lord would open you up and pour you out. And that you would see how beautiful and amazing, how impossible it was that the King of Glory would descend into a manger, would be born as a baby, would subject himself to the authority of his parents, would live a perfect life, would die on your behalf, a death that he did not deserve. Pray that you would hear that and your heart would respond in thanksgiving. It wouldn't be something you just shirk off and say, I'll hear that again next Wednesday. No, we have to trust in this work. If you do not know God as Savior, 
Some of you, you've seen him answering your prayers. You've seen him protecting you in ways that you asked for. You've seen him offering something that, that was really kind to you. But in order to have true thanksgiving, your eyes need to be opened by a miracle called salvation. And God needs to give you a new heart so that you can respond to God in song the way that is honorable and pleasing and right to him. When we do this, when God does this work, it comes out in our song. And we want to sing about his glory. We want to sing about his holiness. We want to sing about how beautiful this God is. And the amazing thing is that this, this new heart is available to you tonight. Regardless of your past, regardless of the ways that you've continued to sin, Christ offers, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is good news. That is good news. Some of you in this room know this truth, but you feel like you can't sing because you're going to be off key or you're not going to hit the words right or your timing is going to be wrong or some technical disadvantage that you have means that I I probably shouldn't sing. But my encouragement to you comes from Psalm 100. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. The qualification is not that this noise needs to be on key. Though we strive to do our best, it's not about purposely singing off key. But the qualification is that there is joy in your heart as you sing. That your heart has been changed and you want to respond in a song of worship. If that's you, sing and sing loudly. Knowing that your song pleases God and your song blesses those around you. I would encourage each of you to take advantage of this opportunity that the Lord is giving you to respond to all that he has done for you with your voice in song. And as I close in prayer and we have the band come up and now we get an opportunity to physically actually respond to the Lord in worship, please bow your heads. I want to share a quote from singing on a man who is a hymn writer. His name was Isaac Watts. He wrote many great hymns. But he has this remark that helps cast our mind onto heaven, onto the reality that singing is and what it is, on the blessing that it is to be. He says this, How divinely full of glory and pleasure shall be that hour when all the millions of mankind that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb shall meet together. And they shall stand around him, Christ, with every tongue and every heart full of joy and praise. How astonishing will be the glory and the joy of that day when all the saints shall join together in one common song of gratitude and love and of everlasting thankfulness to this Redeemer. With that unknown delight, And with inexpressible satisfaction shall all that are saved from the ruins of sin and hell address the Lamb that was slain. And these redeemed shall rejoice in His presence. Lord, this is such good news. To remember that we will be with you who trust in Jesus forever. Singing praises with millions of other Christians who are from every tribe and tongue and nation. Lord, and we will join in the same song, singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. 
And so, God, I ask for the students tonight as we we get an opportunity to take part in this song that actually is already happening right now. That they would understand the privilege that worship is. That they would delight in the worship. Not looking ahead to small groups or an opportunity to go on their phone or an opportunity to see a friend or, or even maybe the opportunity to go home, God. But instead, they would be captivated by you. By your word, which is revealed to us, God. I ask, Lord, that you would be with us. You would fill our hearts with affections, with love, with satisfaction. Not in anything in this world, but with you. We pray this song.